So we just sang together in that verse, may you so rule us by your word that we acknowledge you as Lord. So now let's turn to the Belgian Confession where we confess the doctrine of the church concerning the word of God, and we're going to read Article 4. We dealt uh, last time with Article 4, speaking about the Old Testament, and now we're going to look at this article in terms of the New Testament. So Article 4, you can find that on page 500 of your Book of Praise. There the church confesses, we believe that the Holy Scriptures consist of two parts, namely the Old and New Testament, which are canonical, against which nothing can be alleged, or as I mentioned last time, you could translate the original saying, against which, uh, or concerning which there is no controversy. These books are listed in the Church of God as follows, and then we have the books of the Old Testament, and then we have the books of the New Testament in the last paragraph. The books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul, namely Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and the letter to the Hebrews, the seven other letters, namely James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3, John, Jude, and the Revelation to the Apostle John. So that's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at the New Testament and how it is that we got the New Testament. To do that, I'd like to um, start you off with this scenario because it occurred to me that perhaps a sermon entitled How We Got the New Testament might be conceived by some people to be, well, I'm not that interested in history and this sounds boring. Uh, But I think it's actually a very important topic to us. So let me try to drive that home Um, in this way, and so I'll just paint two very small scenarios for you. So I'd like you to imagine that there is, you know, a a man, we'll we'll pick an an imaginary name, let's say his name is Victor, and um, Victor believes in the Belgian Confession that, that the New Testament as we have it is indeed the Word of God, and that the Word of God teaches us what we need to know about salvation, and so it can be trusted. Those 27 books of the New Testament, he trusts those. But then one day, Victor meets a Roman Catholic friend, and they're talking about scripture, and, and Victor says, yeah, but you know, we, we both agree on the books of the New Testament, and the Roman Catholic friend says, yes, we do, we, we have the same books, um, but I don't get why you Protestants always talk about sola scriptura, and how it's only scripture, because after all, don't you know, Victor, that the New Testament list of books was never finalized until over 300 years after Jesus Christ in the fourth century when the church decided that these books would be the New Testament. It was the church that decided that. So you have to also depend on the church after they're they're the ones who chose scripture. And so Victor goes home and he gets on the internet and he looks up and he says, hey, I found that that seems to be true, that the final list of the books of the New Testament was not finalized until the fourth century gulp, and he feels rattled in his faith. Now, just an imaginary person, this Victor. Now, another scenario. Now we'll pick another person, let's say, in another imaginary name. This is a young lady named River. And uh, River, she believes in Scripture as the Word of God. This is Holy Scripture, this is God's revelation, and these books are inspired books of the Bible. She confesses along with the Belgian Confession that these books, these 27 books of the New Testament, those are God's word. 
And then one day she's, she's reading a, a book, a popular level book that talks about, actually, in, in the first couple hundreds of years of Christianity, there were all kinds of different Christian books. There weren't just four gospels, there were like seven gospels, and there were, there were all kinds of different writings. And the only reason we have these ones in the New Testament is because after all the arguing that went on in the first uh, uh, couple hundred years of Christianity, when the winners of the argument finally said, well, no, we win the argument, they banished all the other books. And so actually there is other Christian books that you could recognize you know, as, as early Christian writings, but we just have the winners, what they put in there. And so she goes and she begins to investigate and she looks on the internet and discovers, oh, there's actually a bunch of other gospels and there's a bunch of other Christian writings, and her faith gets kind of rattled. Now these, these are imaginary scenarios, but they've played out truthfully in various people's lives throughout history. And you have to know this, it is a 100% true that the list of New Testament books as we have it today was not finalized until the fourth century after Christ. That list was not finalized until over 300 years after Jesus. And it's also true that there was a diversity of Christian literature, including other gospels, in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, and not all of those made it into the New Testament. But despite that fact, it is also true that both of those scenarios shouldn't rattle your faith whatsoever, and that you can have confidence in the word of God as the inspired scriptures given to us by the Lord, revealing himself to us as we have them now, as the canon stands, the 27 books of the New Testament. You can have confidence in that. So what I would like to do this afternoon is I would like to give you a number of reasons why we can have confidence in the New Testament scriptures, why this doesn't need to shake your belief, but why we can have confidence in our New Testament scriptures. In, in, in sort of a big way, there's a false assumption that's underneath uh, Victor and River's imaginary scenario. There's a false assumption that is actually pretty common amongst a lot of Christians, and maybe, maybe some of you have this false assumption, that somehow you're not quite sure how it worked, but it's almost as if God gave the New Testament and it kind of just fell down from heaven and it was complete. And that... It's the New Testament, and that's what we have, because God gave it to us. And because it was God revealing himself to us, well, no one really argued about that. It was just clear, everyone understood this was the New Testament, that's what it was. That's not true. That's not how God gave us the New Testament. That's not how it worked. And that's okay, as we're gonna see, that that's okay. We can deal with the historical facts of how the New Testament came to us and not have our faith rattled or shaken in any way. So we're gonna look at four reasons to have confidence in our New Testament scriptures. And the first one is this. The New Testament books are closely, intimately connected with the apostles. The New Testament books, as we have them in the canon of scripture, are closely, intimately connected with the apostles. One author puts it like this. The canon, that is the canon of scripture, the list of books we have, is the byproduct of the ministry of the apostles. So. We learn this from scripture first of all. So in Mark chapter three, Jesus commissions his apostles with these words. He says, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority. So Jesus sends his apostles out and he says, you have authority to preach and have authority. And he sends out the 12 and in Matthew 10 he says, for it is not you who speak, 
but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And in Matthew 10, 14, he warns those who would reject the apostles' ministry in their authority. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So in sum, the the apostles have the authority of Christ himself. They're his mouthpiece going out into the world. And so the teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament and the teachings of the apostles are the foundation of the church. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. He says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the Old and the New Testament, the teaching of, of the apostles. And so we get Things like this, for instance. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't, that's fine. We're just going to read one verse from there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Now we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, as, it, as what it really is, the word of God that is work at you in, as, uh, work at, in you, believers. So the apostles are, were teaching people that the words that we're teaching you is the word of God. It's not the word of men. It's the word of God. And so if the early Christians were like, I need to know what the word of God is, they would go to what the apostles had taught them. And here's the thing. The apostles didn't just teach orally. They didn't just speak, they also wrote things down. At a certain point, they begin to write down their words, often written down by themselves or written by somebody very close to them. Uh, And that way, the authoritative speaking of God through the apostles finds its way to the written word into books. And so we get this uh, verse in the New Testament, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. We read, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the apostles already in the New Testament, we can read that the authoritative word of God is the apostles' teaching also as it's written down, that they understood that to be God's word. And so for obvious reasons then, the apostles, apostolic writings, the writings of the apostles or the writings of someone about what the apostles taught, they were held up and above beyond other books because they were considered the word of God. The books that the church regarded as apostolic, books coming from the apostles, were the books that they read and that they copied and that they used most often in their Christian worship. And so you get things like we read from 2 Peter where Peter says, Oh yeah, it's just like Paul and his writings, which are kind of hard to understand sometimes, and people twist and distort Paul's writings like they do other scripture, he says. He takes Paul's writings and and says like they do other scripture. He considers already in the New Testament era, Paul's writings were scripture. That's what Peter says. And then you get things like in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, where it quotes Luke chapter 10, verse seven, the exact words in the Greek. So it seems already in the New Testament era, Paul and Peter are able to quote from each other and from New Testament sources as scripture. So you see that there's, there's a canon of scripture, there's the word of God's coming together already in the New Testament era. So those apostolic books eventually become the New Testament canon. So the canon of scripture, you could say, is a byproduct of the ministry of the apostles. Now, this is important. 
the apostolic works written by the apostles, they didn't need to have the church to come along and say, well, we're gonna read those and yet we'll stamp that one, that one is true. Or that one is, is scripture and, and this one is not. The apostolic teaching of the apostles had authority in the church of God from the beginning. So here's a quote to you from Herman Bavinck. He says this, we must not suppose that the church made this canon or granted canonical authority to the writings of the prophets and the apostles. Rather, those writings from the moment that they were composed were immediately authoritative in the church and operated as the rule of life and faith. So in John Calvin's day, the Roman Catholics of John Calvin's day were criticizing Calvin saying, you're wrecking the church and you're Protestants, it's all not good. And by the way, don't you know that the canon of scripture was approved by the church? There was no canon of scripture until the church came and said, these are the books. And Calvin you know, retorts to that, he says, no, you've got it totally mixed up. The church did not create the canon of scripture. The church did not decide what was the authoritative teaching of scripture. It was the authoritative teaching of the apostles that created the church. The apostles spoke and wrote, and that's what created the church. It's not like the church then had to say, well, no, we're gonna judge you and give you a stamp of approval. All right? So that's the first reason why you can have confidence that the New Testament as we have it is indeed the word of God. It's intimately connected to the apostles' teaching. It's a byproduct of the apostles' ministry. Here's the second reason. The New Testament books that we have in scripture are the earliest Christian writings. They're the earliest ones. And here's where there's a, there's a little bit of interesting hi history. In 1934, so that was the date that Hitler came to power, uh, that same year, there was a guy named Walter Bauer, so not Eddie Bauer, not Bauer Hockey Equipment, Walter Bauer, he writes a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Early Christianity. And I think he writes it in German and doesn't get translated for a long time. Not too many people pay attention to it. In the 70s, it gets translated to English, and now suddenly all these North American people can read it, European people can read it, and they read it, and they discover this is what he teaches in that book. He teaches that theory that there was all kinds of different Christian writings, and they were all arguing with each other, and then finally the group that won the argument banished all the other books and said, these are just the books we're gonna keep, and that's the New Testament that we have now. Now, this theory of Walter Bauer from 1934 has been refuted by modern scholars, also by modern non-Christian scholars, okay? They've recognized that historically that's just not what happened. However, you're gonna find his, his theory popping up in various places. So for instance, maybe you remember years ago there was a big kerfuffle when Dan Brown came out with the Da Vinci Code. And the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown didn't make up the, you know, some of the stuff that he was talking about in the Da Vinci Code about different gospels and whatnot, he was just getting that from people like Walter Bauer. And so every once in a while in popular literature or in, or in you'll see on television there'll be a program and people will be like, ooh, the lost books of Christianity. All right, and it all comes down to this 1934 book which has been refuted by modern scholars. It's just plainly not true. That being said, there were other Christian writings. There are things called the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Peter and the Apocalypse of Peter and a book called the, the Shepherd of Hermas and, and various other early Christian writings that were also very popular in the first couple of hundred years of Christianity. Here's the thing. All of those books, which are not found in the New Testament, 
they all date from the second and the third and the fourth century. They're all later. The earliest books are the ones that we have in the New Testament. The books that are most intimately connected to the apostles are the ones that we have in our Bibles. Right? So there's not much modern debate about that anymore today, although it does sort of pop up in popular culture. Uh, Clement of Alexandria was a theologian writing in the late first century, so the, the 90s after Christ. He was a Greek-Egyptian scholar, and he writes and he quotes from various books, but whenever he quotes from the Gospels, he says that it's Holy Scripture. Right? In 125 after Christ, you have Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, and early on there, he's quoting books like the book of Ephesians, and he's talking about it as sacred scripture. He recognizes it. 150 years after Christ, Justin Martyr, he's quoting various books, but when he quotes the Gospels, he says these are scripture. Oregon, second century theologian, does the same thing. He, he, he quotes from different Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, etc. but when he quotes from our Gospels, as we have in the New Testament, he says this is holy scripture. This is the word of God. All right, 180, Arrhenius does exactly the same thing. So the, the early Christian fathers, the historians, when they quote scripture, they quote the books of, that we have in our New Testament, the earliest books as they're connected to the apostles. So you can have confidence in those books, just like Christians in the second century did. So first, first reason that you have confidence is that they're linked to the apostles. Second reason, they're the earliest books. The second reason, is that the New Testament canon, the list of books, took form very early on. It wasn't an invention of the fourth century. The form took form early on. So there's this idea that yeah, in the fourth century, in the 300s, the church had a, like a big sin together and then they said, let's get the books together, check, 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 this is now official scripture. That's not how it happened. The process was much more organic than that. God inspired the, whole, uh, the New Testament, inspired the writing of the apostles, and the church didn't decide that those scriptures were authoritative, they just simply received them as. And early believers, very early on, were conscious that they were creating a canon, that they were creating a set list of scriptures that was the word of God, that was the New Testament, or the, the scriptures of the New Covenant. The way that I'd like to look at that is through some very interesting research that has been going on um, about the physical manuscripts of the second and third century. And this is research done by somebody named Dr. Michael Kruger, and he is a professor at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, uh, uh, United States. And he's got some very interesting stuff that I learned this week and I wanted to share with you. First of all, he looks at the quantity of books that we have. So he, he looks at all of the manuscripts uh, that we have of the New Testament books. And he says from the second and the third century, so from the 100s and the 200s after Christ, we physically have about 60 manuscripts of New Testament books. So we have multiple copies, right? We have about 60 manuscripts. Then he goes and looks at how many copies do we have of all of the other books that people say could have been in scripture, the other gospels, the other letters. We have 60 of the New Testament coming from the second and third century, and uh, how many do we have of the other books? We have 17. And so his point is that already in the second century, in the hundreds after Christ, it's obvious that the church is making copies and using more copies of, of these New Testament books that we have 
than of the other so-called lost books or banished books, that they just simply weren't read or as favored in those early years. Interesting. Then he looks at manuscript collections. So not just one single manuscript, but manuscripts that have been put together as collections. And we have many collections of the New Testament books put together. So for instance, we have collections where all four of our gospels were combined and grouped together already in the hundreds after Christ. We have Paul's epistles connected with the book of Hebrews in a collection that already people then were starting to form a canon. They were starting to form a New Testament. They were binding together. Interestingly, some of, um, some of the, the Paul's epistles, for instance, with the Hebrews, they have page numbers, but the page numbers are quite high. It's obvious that there's, there's been pages that were missing. And so they assume, yeah, that probably it was already the other books of the New Testament attached to Paul's letters, but they somehow have gotten ripped off or they've gone missing. The page numbers show us that there was more on there. So already very early on, way before the fourth century, Christians were putting together a New Testament canon. There are a couple, it's very rare, there are a couple of manuscript collections where they added an apocryphal book, or they added a book that's not in our New Testament canon. But interestingly, in those examples, the handwriting of the scribe is different in that book. So there was one scribe who was translating the New Testament, and then they added another book, but that book wasn't on the same scribe's hand. They got that from somewhere else. So the, third and, the second and third century believers, they were already compiling New Testament books into a, some sort of New Testament, into some sort of canon. Then he looks at uh, the, the use of scrolls, which so if you imagine you know, the Old Testament, Jesus reads the, the scroll of Isaiah. So they have these big scrolls that you open up and you can read and you turn them and you can, that's how you read. And um, there's an, an interesting historical phenomenon that happens. You can read about it on, on Wikipedia if you like, that Christians uh, almost exclusively used codexes rather than scrolls. So a codex is basically a book. It's an early book. So rather than having a scroll that you unravel, you have pages that are bound together on the side. So the first books start coming out around uh, 2,000 years ago, and Christians jump on it, and almost all of Christian literature is used in codexes rather than scrolls. So you do have a couple of New Testament books that have been found on scrolls, but they're all in reused scrolls. So basically in those days, if you had a big scroll and you're like, kind of sick and tired of that book, I'll paint over it, and then we'll write a new book on top of it. A little bit like some artists do with, with, you know, with uh, pieces of art. And so I've got this scroll, I, don't, I can't afford or I can't buy some other thing, so I'm just gonna redo it, right? So we have a couple of, couple of New Testament books that were written on reused scrolls, but we don't have one single New Testament book written on a brand new scroll. Because if they had the option, they never used the scroll, they used the codex, the book, instead. So there's a pattern here. The New Testament scriptures are written on codexes, are written in books, whereas one third of all of the other apocryphal books, all of the other books that are not included in the New Testament, the other new Christian writings, one third of them are found on scrolls. So why do Christians put the New Testament in a, in a book form, and why, and, and, but they tend to be okay with putting the other kind of literature on scrolls? Well, Dr. Kruger says it's this. What can a codex, a book, do that a scroll can't? Well, you can't take two different scrolls and combine them. But you can take two different collections of manuscripts and combine them. You can use codexes to make a book 
You can combine manuscripts together. And so what he says after all this historical research, the reason why Christians were using books and why this is like a historical phenomenon is because the early Christians were compiling a canon. They were getting the New Testament scriptures and making it into a book because they understood this was the New Covenant scriptures. It was not something that got invented in the fourth century. Much earlier than that, they were already making a canon of scripture. So here's something interesting. Have a look with me at 2 Timothy chapter four. It's near the end of the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter four. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. This is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, when you, Timothy, come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. So he wants Timothy to bring a cloak, because he's cold. Bring the books, but above all, bring the parchments. Now, our English translation, it doesn't make it particularly clear, but the, the Greek word used there for books is scrolls. Bring the scrolls, and also bring the parchments. The parchments are not scrolls. What are the parchments? The word there is derived from Latin. It's a book for codex. It's a book for these, these new Christian books that Christians were using. So Paul says, bring the scrolls, and for sure don't forget the books. Now, we don't know exactly which scrolls and which parchments he's talking about, but given all of the evidence that we've been talking about or that I've briefly been touching on, it's most likely that the, old, that the scrolls that he's asking for were Old Testament scriptures. And it's also most likely that the parchments that he says, really make sure you bring the parchments, were New Testament scriptures, that they were early gospels, or perhaps that they were even copies of his own letters. So you know, when you send an email off, well, you've got a copy of that email yourself for whenever you want it. But in the ancient world, people would write letters and they would often get someone to copy the letter so they could keep a copy of their own letter. We know that you know, from various historical sources. So it could be that Paul is saying, bring the parchments. Maybe it's an early gospel, Christian writings. Maybe it's his own, some of the copies of his own letters that have been sent out and that he wants to have. He wants to keep a, a codex, keep a collection of New Testament scripture. Paul's saying, bring the Old and the New Testament to me. Bring the covenant scriptures. It's an indication that the New Testament canon already in Paul's day was beginning to be formed, that the new Christian or the early New Testament believers were conscious that these writings were making up a New Testament. All right, so we said trust the New Testament because it's closely related to the apostles. It is uh, the earliest. Um, then we've got some the evidence that this canon, this scripture was being brought together at an early date. Now this last one. It is true that there was debate about which books should be in the New Testament, but that debate was very limited. So it's true, there was debate, but the debate was very limited. You could sort of think of it like a dartboard or like a, like a, you got a bullseye and you got circles on an archery, an archery target, right? In the bullseye was the books that everybody accepted. Nobody ever debated those. All four gospels, 10 of the 14 Pauline letters, one John, one Peter, these were, these were scripture from the beginning. Nobody ever debates them. Then you have the second ring. These are the ones where there was some limited, isolated debate. Two Peter, 
Jude, Hebrew James, Paul's letters to 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, 1 and 2 John and Revelation. There was some debate about that. And we know that because, for instance, Oregon in the early 2nd century, in the early 100s, he says this. He says there's debate about three, uh, one and, uh, or 2 and 3 John and James and 2 Peter and Revelation. But then he adds, but that's an exception. In other words, most of us agree that they're supposed to be part of scripture, but there are some places where they, they have a debate about that. And most of that debate was, are they actually written by the apostle, right? So he says there was debate, but it was isolated debate. So you don't buy into the argument that you hear like, oh, there's debate everywhere and the winners won. No, it wasn't like that. And then there was a third circle and that contained a bunch of other Christian writings that some people were like, hey, this seems like scripture, uh, maybe it should be included, the Didache, One Clement, Apocalypse of Peter, Letter of Barnabas, Gospel of Thomas, Ignatius Letters, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of the Egyptians, Gospel of Mary. There were some people that thought, well, perhaps we should include one of those or two of those. There is some debate about that. We have in the year 180 after Christ, we have what is called the Muratorian, uh, Muratorian Fragment, or the Muratorian Canon, and this is a document from 180 years after Jesus, so about 80 years after the Apostle John has written Revelation, and uh, that has a list of New Testament books, and it affirms 22 of the 27 books we have in our New Testament. So you've got almost all of them there. Now it also includes the Apocalypse of Peter, which we don't have, but then it adds as a note, but this one is being debated but all the other ones are not, not de being debated. So you have already 180 years after Christ, you've got this core canon of scripture. It's widely accepted by Christians. There's a limited amount of debate. There's a couple of books, five or so books on the edges of the canon that are debated and they aren't fully decided upon until later. Now, by the time you get to the fourth century, time you get to the 300s, there's no debate and we can confess with the Belgian Confession that against which nothing can be alleged, against which there is no controversy across Christians across the world today. There's no controversy about this ever since the 300s. Those edges have become firm and we've recognized and received that these are all indeed the inspired works of scripture. But think about this, even let's say those five books were not, were not there. If two Peter wasn't part of our Bible, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be lacking any particular Christian doctrine. The books that came in or decided upon or that were re received late, they, none of those defined a particular doctrine that would have been out if they hadn't been in there. The core list of books and the core theology of scripture was all in place at a very early age. And so we have no debate on all these. We have all of the books of scripture. So what does Victor say when he's confronted with his Roman Catholic friend who says, don't you know that the church is the one who made up the list of scripture in the fourth century? You have to listen to the authority of the church, not just to the authority of scripture. Well, you can say, well, first of all, no, the, the, the books of the New Testament were authoritative when the apostles wrote them. They didn't get their authority when the church approved them. And 
they, they carry that divine authority from, from the beginning. And in fact, already in Paul's day, Paul was collecting Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, scrolls and parchments, as he was collecting the Bible as we know it. And then in the first century, and in the second century, and in the third century, there was a core group of scripture, te- scripture books, texts, the New Testament scriptures that were being combined in codex form, in book form, as the church already was receiving it as the canon. So the church didn't bestow authority upon the books of scripture in the fourth century. The church simply received and accepted the authority that they had since the beginning. And then what do we do when River talks to somebody or reads a book and says, oh, there was all kinds of diversity in the first you know, couple centuries and then it was just the winners who won and they set the books. You'd say, uh, no, that, that idea has been refuted by modern scholarship, uh, by Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars. Yes, there was some debate about some of the books, but it was much more limited than you would like to think. And moreover, we're not Muslims and we're not Mormons. We don't believe that the New Testament just was like dictated to somebody and they wrote it down and we don't think that we had uncovered it as gold plates in the ground and discovered it and it was all right there. God in his infinite wisdom decided to use historical processes in order to give us his word. And so we would expect that there would be debate about the books, we would expect that. In fact, we would expect that also because there's also always been false teaching, so why wouldn't there be false teaching about the canon of scripture? And there's always been spiritual attacks on the church, so why wouldn't there be spiritual attacks related to the canon of scripture? But the debate was, the debate was isolated, it wasn't widespread, most people agreed on all of the core books. And just because something is debated doesn't mean that it's not true. Jesus Christ is true man and true God. There was lots of debate about that. It doesn't mean that it's not true. The fact is, is that even though not everybody agreed on every single book right away, we can have confidence because of everything we've talked about that this is indeed the authoritative word of God and that the New Testament canon, as we have it today, it can be trusted as the inspired works of scripture. You don't have to doubt that the Bible is God's revelation to us. You can have total confidence in the New Testament The Bible is God making himself known to us, revealing himself to us in everything that is necessary for our salvation and for his glory. So have confidence in it and read it for his glory and for your good. Amen? Let's pray. Our dear Lord, Father in heaven, thank you so much for your written word and also the way that you've ensured that we received it through history. So we pray, Lord, that everybody here this afternoon would have great confidence in your living word. And thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who does still today work through your word in us as we read it. So don't stop doing that, Lord. Use your word to shape our lives and use it to renew our minds and use it to discipline our lives. And most of all, we thank you for what your word reveals to us that you are our triune God, and Jesus is the Word made flesh, our Lord and Savior. We pray it in your name. Amen.